And you are listening to 3 R, the show Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Amy Mullins, and I have with me in the studio Professor Andrew Walter. Jo- Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hi, Amy. Very happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you. So, Andrew, you are at the School of Government. You're the Interim Director. And uh, we need to clarify here, you're not actually British per se. No, I'm Australian, born and bred deep in my jeans. And yet you have a somewhat British accent. Yeah, sorry about that. I spent no, most totally of my fine. adult life in the UK. <laughs> As we said, you must have soaked up the language and the accent like a sponge. Yeah, a West Australian beach sponge. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, given that you have lived in the UK for such a long time, and it was semi-recent, when when did you come over here? Yeah, here? I came here from London in at the end of 2012, uh, but I spent pretty much all of the time uh, between 1983 and then in the UK. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, a pretty important time period too. Yeah. Who was in? Who was Prime Minister at that point? Well, I left when uh, David Cameron had been Prime Minister for a couple of years uh, since the global financial crisis hit and they turfed Gordon Brown out, uh, the, the Chancellor mm. that would end boom and bust, um, who became Prime Minister, and then David Cameron took over in the coalition government in 2010. Yes, and before that in the 80s, was that Margaret Thatcher? Yeah, I lived through Margaret Thatcher. And in fact, when I first arrived in 1983, there were still riots, anti-poll tax stuff on the streets of London and Oxford, where I was then. Right. So, you know, have you noticed any difference between the the policies of Thatcherism and uh, Theresa May's time? Well, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's meant to be a more inclusive, harking, harking back to the old days of conservatism, so-called One Nation Toryism that's appealing to non-traditional voters. Um, and Thatcher, of course, in many ways was very different and quite, yeah, a radical prime minister in a very different way, but taking... Uh, very taking the Conservative Party away from that old One Nation Tory approach. Um, Theresa May is bring, trying to bring it back uh, in many ways to something that I guess would have been more common in the 50s and 60s, um, but I think in a deeply problematic and probably unsustainable way. Yes, because there is... Um We'll get to Brexit in a sec, but I just wanted to talk about the language that she uses because in Parliament she does use language that's all about inclusion and um, it's almost like wrapping everyone in a nice warm blanket. So on the surface it looks really inclusive what she's talking about, but as you mentioned there or alluded to, underneath there's a lot of division that's really involved with what she's saying. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, David Cameron had elements of this too. I mean, he was was not a Thatcherite in some ways he was closer to Tony Blair uh, and of course he was deeply despised by the the far right in the uh, in the Conservative Party and the anti-Europeans in particular he was seen as an urban liberal um, even though he uh, beneath the surface again with me uh, they pursued austerity policies um, and ended up blaming I think uh, most of the problems that flowed from that on Europe. Absolutely. So let's talk about that because uh, one of the key um, factors in Brexit people have said is austerity and the measures that are currently in place to deal with um, the British economy and uh, un- unemployment. Clearly, austerity measures haven't been working. Is that a fair conclusion? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, something like I think 91% of economists polled in the UK, I think it was an Ipsos Murray poll recently, agreed that austerity had been applied too stringently um, and that had severe costs in terms of low growth coming out of the global financial crisis that hit Britain particularly badly and very high costs in terms of un unnecessary unemployment. Uh, so those have been Conservative Party policies and in that sense, Cameron, and may have been, you know, pretty close. So let's talk about Brexit then and what happened. So um, if just to recap, I guess, on, on the day when we saw this referendum on whether the uh, the UK would leave the EU, the European Union, um, because uh, you... And then you had two sides, the um, Remain side and the Leave side, and uh, Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage were very staunchly um, to leave, to Brexit. Um, and then we saw uh, people like... Um, um, the Labor leader, uh, what's his name? Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Um, leave, you know, not Many even... Many people forget his name. Exactly. He's very <laughs> somewhat forgettable, let's yeah. just say. Um, and and he's actually been re-elected as Labor leader, so yeah. he'll remain unforgettable or forgettable yeah. for a while. But, uh, you know, there were some fairly clear divides or, you know, between the leaves and the remains. It didn't seem like there were a huge amount of undecideds, were there? Um, well... In the party itself, there are a number of people sitting on the fence. Theresa May, in many ways, I mean, she was a very lukewarm Remainer, um, so she's switched sides. Mm. The, the the major Brexiteers in the party, Boris Johnson, of course, but also Michael Gove, who both thought they had a chance. Um, and at the leadership as well. Yeah, um, at the leadership, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, pretty clearly in the case of Boris Johnson, that was the reason why he had also shifted from a pro remain uh, position to a leave position. So this is all about personal ambition in many ways. This is a, also a completely unnecessary referendum. Something like 10% of voters uh, on the eve of David Cameron's decision to hold the referendum thought that the European Union was among the most important issues facing uh, Britain and British politics. So this was not uh, a big issue for no. the electorate. It was purely intra-party politics within the Conservative Party and, you know, lots of ambition, personal ambition. So was it David Cameron who, who agreed to this referendum in order to yes. quiet some of his... Um yeah. Yeah. The, uh, what, <laughs> yeah. What the people who John Major called the bastards, um, yep. the anti-Europeans, mm. uh, who he could never fully control, and who were very disruptive in the final years of the the post-Thatcher Conservative Party government. So. Um, yeah, David Cameron thought, uh, and also he was deeply complacent in many ways about, uh, well, he thought that he would easily win um, and that this would be a way of resolving uh, that intra-party problem easily. So he, you know, he overreached. Not so, yeah, mm. exactly. And then I guess as part of this, we saw, a, you know, a rise of nationalism and this was more mm. about um, Britain's identity and somewhat harking back to older times where, you know, it was almost a bit of nostalgia for a Britain that was isolated and also an imperial superpower. It, you know, what kind of, how much of that was a factor in actually, you know, leading to a success in terms of the Brexit result? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, not just a little bit of nostalgia. I think this is deeply nostalgic. Um, I think indeed deeply delusional in many ways. A number of the the Brexiteers who are talking about, uh, you know, a grand destiny for Britain in the future um, are really harking back to those, what they see is this golden age of British dominance. Uh, yes, Britain was the world's superpower, um, not to the extent that America achieved after 1945, but nevertheless the dominant power of its time and it's certainly a global power but you know Britain is now living in a world of rising new great powers including India and China of course a resurgent Russia uh, the United States and the European Union the remaining 27 are not going to go away in fact if anything they're more likely I think to accelerate uh, integration in the coming years so there's a real danger that Britain actually will be left stranded in an increasingly unstable stable and potentially dangerous world. Mm, and stagnant. I mean, they were actually reliant a great deal on colonialism and exploiting other countries in order to grow their own economy, as well as the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, up until 1945, uh, so Britain was a great beneficiary um, of its empire. But after 1945, the remnants of empire, I think, held Britain back. And it was Britain's move into the European Union after 1973, something that countries like Australia saw as a semi-betrayal of the Commonwealth and its its own destiny. That move into the European, well, as it was then, the common market in 1973, um, actually helped to reinvigorate a stagnating British economy, which had been, you know, falling behind its European partners in the 60s um, and early 70s. And um, since then, Britain was one of the best performers after Thatcher. Thatcher mm. did really achieve some necessary reforms and British growth and productivity growth and all of those things that determine real wages actually you know, they were all pretty positive um, right up until the time that Britain signalled it was going to leave. Yeah, so let's talk about what the benefits are of being in the EU and how this then relates to leaving the EU because mm. the European market is a single market. So, um, as you say, there are 27 members in that market. Plus Britain. Plus mm. Britain and also others lining up to get into the market. Um, and there are four, uh, I guess, freedoms within yeah. this EU and and they call, they're about the freedom um, of movement of goods, capital, services and people. So one of the ones that people would very much, um, you know, be able to relate to is that if you have an EU passport, you can travel anywhere within the EU. You can also live and work and study in other countries way more freely than you could have otherwise done. Yeah. So in terms of then extricating Britain from this there you know there are courts that they've now subscribed to to say you know we'll be subject to your laws and regulations um, you know there there are trade deals that are part of the EU that they will then now not be part of at just how messy is this going to be for Britain incredibly messy so this is not just about foreign policy and trade policy which has uh, caught a lot of the headlines and of course immigration uh, the the fourth fundamental freedom the movement uh, freedom the movement of peoples this is all about the fundamentals of domestic regulation so there's the so-called great repeal bill um, which is uh, beginning to weave its way through parliament 
now, which is essentially translating uh, literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of EU law, uh, which applies directly in Britain, as in all of the other 28 member states, um, into domestic law, because uh, they'll essentially have to ensure that British legislation uh, is on the books uh, as of the end of May 2019, when Britain will leave. So there's a smooth transition in, yeah. in the legal sense. But this this touches pretty much every aspect of daily life in Britain, um, not just for the government, but for people thinking about uh, the regulation of food, uh, the regulation of the environment, the quality of water required on British beaches, uh, all of which is potentially going to get worse. A lot of uh, Tory members uh, in government are talking about a bonfire of regulations to make Britain into, you know, Again, Britain's great future, some kind of 19th century utopia, free trade, low regulation, small state. Um, what's that going to do to the local environment and, and many other things that Brits uh, essentially take for granted and don't fully understand are actually part and parcel of European law. Well, this is quite disturbing, isn't it? And also something like the NHS, which is their version of Medicare, mm. our Medicare, that is something which has been a corner piece or a, a real um, sense of source of pride for British people. Yeah. How is that affected or have has been undermined? Well, you know, I think the first way, I mean, this is uh, the National Health Service, obviously a very important part of the British budget. Uh, so in terms of government spending, um, the UK Treasury itself, uh, before the refer referendum estimated, and I think this was pretty much a consensus view among reputable uh, economic policy consultancies and universities and so on that did studies, they estimated that over the next 15 years, Britain would be over 7% worse off in terms of real output, uh, so lower incomes uh, as a result of leaving uh, the European Union. So that's going to flow through to the bottom line in terms of tax revenues and the availability of money, essentially, to put into projects that are already creaking. Um, in fact, some people would say that the NHS is uh, pretty severely under threat from austerity and lower government spending targets already. So the prospects on the fiscal side are pretty poor. Then you get as you were saying earlier, the freedom of movement of peoples um, and the NHS is a massive importer of foreign immigrants. Now, it has to be said that many of those immigrants come from outside of the European Union. So if you, you, know, if you go into a British hospital, uh, you're quite likely to be treated by an African nurse or an Asian doctor or whatever. So, so Britain will continue to need to import uh, large amounts of people into its NHS and indeed many other services. Right. Well, let's also discuss um, some of the other aspects of this because um, Theresa May, she signed the letter mm. to say, to notify the EU that we're officially leaving. Obviously, everyone got the memo through the news and everything else that this was happening, but we had to wait for the official um, Article 50 to be triggered, which yeah. is... Um, via means of notification, written notification. So Theresa May has just recently done this only a few days ago and we've seen, um, I guess, well, she wrote a letter and she said this is what we would like to happen when we're Brexiting or leaving the EU. And she did set out some um, preferences for the ability to simultaneously um, Brexit or arrange those affairs, so disentangle themselves from the EU at the same time as negotiating trade deals 
uh, bilaterally with various countries in the EU. Now, what was the response from the European Union to these kind of demands or, or requests, whatever your perception is of them, from Theresa May? Mm. Well, I think it was a pretty sober and mature response. Uh, Donald Tusk, uh, the recently re-elected Polish President of the European Council of Ministers, uh, said, you know, essentially, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a phony war now for nine months since the results of the referendum. So everyone's been expecting this and Theresa May has self-promised that she would trigger uh, so-called Article 50 uh, to leave uh, by the end of March. So everyone knew this was coming. They also had a pretty good idea of what would be contained in it. A couple of crucial things. One is that Theresa May admits in that uh, that Britain will withdraw from that massive single market to which 50% of British exports go. So that's... That's a, huge. That, that's huge. And that's a, a, it's also a big retreat because you may remember that during the referendum campaign that people like Boris Johnson essentially told the British people that they could have their cake, mm. leave Brexit and be relieved of all these so-called onerous restrictions on British sovereignty and at the same time receive all of the benefits of membership, including remaining in the single market. That was a lie um, and uh, essentially that lie was admitted, though not explicitly in that document. The other thing is that Theresa May says that they want a BAFTA, a big ambitious free trade area for Britain. So they still want, you know, so there's still the remnants of that objective. But of course, the Europeans won't give Britain that without Britain being required to accept many of the costs and responsibilities of membership too. So the Brits are still trying to have their cake uh, and mm. eat it. They won't be allowed to by the other side. No. And I mean, part of it is that they need, they have, a, I guess, a bill, an exit bill um, yeah. to leave in the first place because they have a great deal of uh, financial commitments that have already been made. Um, this bill, uh, the huge bill, yeah. it looks like it's about 60 billion euros. Yeah. That's that's massive, isn't it? Fifty billion pounds. That will yeah. come down that okay. number. Uh, so that's an opening bid on the yep. part of the Europeans. But remember, Britain has um, made long-term commitments uh, to, for example, pension provision for uh, European civil servants. Um, a small state. I mean, again, the idea that there's this massive state in Europe which is controlling and regulating uh, all of the twenty-eight members is a myth. Mm. Uh, but it was one that was exploited quite effectively. Very effectively by yeah. the levers in the campaign. But nevertheless, there's a substantial pension um, obligation there, for example. So, And many other things that Britain, collective institutions that Britain has uh, committed to funding um, for the past four decades. So it can't just walk away from that. So Britain will have to cough up tens of billions of pounds, mm. um, but it will come down from 50 billion pounds. So this is all about negotiating. Yeah. And this is negotiating a divorce before mm. they're thinking about what sort of relationship uh, will be you know, there in the future. That's really quite disturbing mm. to think. And and the other part about this is that some people don't want to be divorced. No. Uh, so Scotland in particular was very strongly remain and they yes. didn't want to leave the European Union. And as we uh, would recall, they had a, a referendum about um, independence. So potentially in, I think it was 2014, they had a referendum. Yeah. Um, and 55% of uh, Scottish people wanted to stay within the UK. Um, that now in terms of polling has actually moved a bit more to something like 50-50. Yeah. And, uh, and Nicola Sturgeon, who is the leader of Scotland within the UK 
has actually indicated that they, they want to have another referendum on independence. What yeah. do you think that uh, effect is going to have on the negotiation, but also just more broadly for Scottish people? Yeah, well, I think um, a, a new referendum which would leave, uh, which would lead to a, a leave result for Scotland is by no means uh, certain. So it's pretty evenly balanced, I think, as you say, that um, there are now more Scots who feel as though effectively they've been betrayed yet again by the Conservatives. Conservatives. Remember um, that the the Tories, the Conservatives, only have one seat in Scotland. They effectively have no representation in Scotland. They do not represent the wishes of the Scottish people. So the Scots see Westminster essentially as a foreign parliament um, that's imposing a massive decision um, on the Scottish nation that they don't agree with. Of course, that's also true for Northern Ireland and collectively for the City of London, uh, which also mm. voted strongly in favour of remaining. Um, but they don't have the options uh, that are available to the Scots. So I think for the Scots, um, this is about remaining relevant. This is about saying you can't take our voice for granted. You can't take our, um, our cooperation for granted. You need to include us in the negotiations as they're going to proceed over the next year and a half with the rest of Europe. Our interests need to be taken into account. Yeah, and but the response from Theresa May has been quite dismissive, has it not? Yeah, she by precedent has the right to refuse to allow Scotland a referendum on the question of leaving the UK, which is quite extraordinary, mm, and you very. might you might see as a little hypocritical um, when uh, that's exactly what the Conservative Party imposed unnecessarily on the rest of Britain. Yeah, well, what do you think? I mean, should Scotland actually end up, uh, I guess, the nationalism building in Scotland mm. because, I mean, there's a huge history there between England and Scotland uh, in terms of the, the sense of identity as well as politics. Mm. Um, but should they actually want to remain in the EU, just how messy does that make it for them? Because, I mean, they will presumably have to apply separately to stay in the EU. Yes, yes, they would. So it wouldn't be an automatic um, entry um, or a remaining. Uh, in the EU for Scotland, they would have to apply separately and that would itself involve extensive and protracted negotiations. Now, I think the rest of Europe would be fairly welcoming mm. and Scotland potentially could get quite a good deal. Um, but nevertheless, I think in the short run, this is about remaining relevant and giving Scotland some leverage in the negotiations um, that will be going on over the next year and a half. Um, you know, obviously the Scots want to remain in the single market. They're quite dependent on the rest of Europe um, in terms of exports and uh, for their poorer regions uh, like Wales uh, in particular, which will be a very big loser. So, so and, the regions... And yet Wales voted to leave. Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, so this is, a, this is really interesting, I find, as a, so I'm a political economist, so mm. I, I think about the ways in which politics and economics interact. And the, some of the biggest pro-leave uh, constituencies in Britain, such as in Wales, uh, were also among those which were most dependent on the rest of Europe in terms of their export profile, but also in terms of the uh, receipt of European uh, structural funds. Yeah, so it's similar to um, the Trump scenario where yeah. a lot of his uh, policies may negatively affect his core votership. 
Yeah, absolutely. So people weren't voting with their pocketbook. This wasn't, in a sense, what, what political scientists would call an economic voting exercise. This was a, much more about the politics of identity. People mm. essentially were willing to shoot themselves in the foot economically. Yeah. Um, and the, as I said earlier, the, the Tories are beginning to admit this, that there will be substantial costs, economic costs, from leaving um, the, the potential benefits, you know, big free trade deals with China and India and Brazil, all of the sorts of things that, you know, supposedly will be far easier for Britain, a much smaller nation uh, on its own uh, to achieve. These are, you know, these will be protracted, difficult negotiations. The, the, the prospective negotiations with Australia and the United States will be difficult. So these are all, you know, to be determined just how, um, just how wonderful this future for Britain is going to be in terms of its potential benefit. But the costs are going to be very substantial and Britons will be feeling this for the next generation, particularly the younger generation of Britons. Absolutely. And just finally, you've touched there on identity. What do you think the implications are of this now for the British population and their struggle for, you know, I guess, re-establishing some control or order on their identity? Because to me, it seems like it's a lot about a feeling of being out of control, that they feel like there's other people from other countries interfering in their country and that they don't have a sense of control over who they are, what they stand for anymore, or at least in a relative sense to how they were in the past. Where does that leave the British people now in terms of their sense of identity and uh, and how that might affect the future? Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously, if you ask people that question, you'd get many, many different answers. So for some people, um, and I wouldn't, I'm not among those people who say that, you know, all this was driven by a sort of nativist, uh, anti-immigration, quasi, you know, racism. Um, There are certainly some elements of that. Uh, People associated with the National Front, um, historically, people associated with, or at least some people associated with UKIP, the Independence Party. Uh, did adopt that stance. And so for them, identity is essentially about reducing immigration. Um, The problem is, as we were saying earlier, that Britain is a nation very dependent on immigrants. And again, uh, the Tories have admitted that Britain will continue to take, need to take large numbers of immigrants from the rest of the world. They would like something approximating the Australian system, which would allow them to be more selective about who they bring in, people with more skills in the right kinds of areas and this sort of thing, which of course the fourth freedom of people's uh, movement uh, didn't allow Britain to undertake. For other people, identity means more about, you know, that, again, that nostalgic view of Britain not being subject to decisions on the part of the European Court of Justice, um, European regulations, you know, all these myths about, uh, you know, the length of bananas and these sorts of things (laughs) that supposedly Brussels um, regulates on a daily basis, which it doesn't. But um, for many people, much of this is about just autonomy and the ability for Britain to set its own way. Now, it may well set its own way, but in a much more uncertain and dangerous world. Mm. Um, And how much better that will be is very much to be seen. It sure is. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for coming in to discuss this. Mm. It's just been so insightful. 
You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we can get you back when as things develop yeah, to discuss to. it again. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Wonderful. Uh, that was Professor Andrew Walter, Interim Director of the Melbourne School of Government at the University of Melbourne, and uh, he's a political economist and uh, he's written some pieces um, on their Election Watch page as well on the University of Melbourne's page because there's a lot of European elections coming up, so stay tuned for the developments in France as well.